Israel's unbelief consistent with God's plan. And of course, since we're going to be in three chapters, this is part one. No, we're not going to have 35 parts, but uh, so just saying. So uh, uh, the other question would be, well, what about Israel? Okay. So letter A, Paul's personal connection with unbelieving Israel, verses one to three. Uh, when Paul gets started here, he is anticipating the questions that I brought up as our introduction. If justification is by faith, is for all Gentiles, God must have forsaken Israel. Now, you might say, how would he anticipate that question? Well, let's understand that, first of all, we have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But second of all, some people believe this. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who believe Israel has been forsaken. God's plan is the church. There is no tribulation. There is no uh, 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 the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. That all happened in 70 A.D. because God has forsaken Israel. By them killing their Messiah, uh, that was the last straw type thing. As we go through this, you're going to have to uh, not just listen to me, but look at it yourself. It is quite obvious by the time we get through these three chapters that not only has he not forsaken Israel in the remnant uh, of uh, belief, but he is going to restore them and give them all the things that he promised them. Uh, our brothers who believe that Israel's been forsaken, look at those promises and say they've been spiritualized. The kingdom is in your heart. And, and we don't have a problem with that concept as uh, participants in the new covenant. God has changed our heart. He's put a, given us a new spirit. He's put his spirit within us. And now we live by the power of the spirit, by the grace of God, uh, according to the rules of the kingdom, kingdom if you will, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a literal kingdom coming, okay? Uh, second one, if salvation uh, is from the Jews and is first to the Jews, why did Israel reject Jesus as Messiah? Now, think about what the, if salvation basically comes through the Jewish people, uh, we have the law, we have the prophets, Jesus comes to fulfill the law, he is Jewish, uh, it is part of his job to uh, get Israel back in a right uh, relationship with God, but they rejected him. Uh, why? You'd have thought they would have accepted him. Uh, and again, we're going to answer some of those questions also. Letter C, sure, some Jews might believe, but what about the nation of Israel? Uh, in Ephesians, we find in chapter 2 that... The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles who have believed. Okay, so some Jews have believed. God promised in the Old Testament that there would be always be a believing remnant. Okay, but what about the nation? Well, the believing remnant ultimately is going to be uh, the nation of Israel when that time comes. And again, we'll see that as we go along. Number two, a Jewish perspective. Like Saul, in our understanding, Paul, okay? Philippians 3, 4 through 6, Israel felt secure in their racial heritage from Abraham. 
their adherence to rabbinical traditions, and their legalistic performance of Levitical ceremony. So Philippians 3, 4 to 6 says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And listen to this next part. Concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. There wasn't a thing that you could point to in Paul's life that broke the Old Testament uh, law. Wow, he was perfect. Yeah, maybe in his outward adherence. Uh, Romans chapter 7 helps us understand that inwardly he recognized, ah, there really was a problem, still is even after salvation. So just like him, Israel felt secure in all of those things. Uh, But after reading chapters 1 through 8, Any Jew would feel like God had abandoned Israel, replaced them with the church. Sure, a few people of the nation of Israel might get saved, but that's it, okay? So that brings us to number three, personal grief over Israel's unbelief, verses one through three. Uh, Letter A, assurance of personal honesty. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. So he starts out with, I tell the truth in Christ. Now, uh, one of the things that I have found is even we as believers, we have learned to bend things so it makes us look sometimes a little bit better than we really are. Um, And of course, we don't want anybody to know how bad we really are because, well, what would they think? Instead of understanding that uh, Scripture teaches that if we live in integrity, we don't need to worry about any of that. When we blow it, we not only have to confess our sins to God, but if someone else is involved, we just deal with that. Why? Because that's part of integrity. Uh, you are who you are. You will have your failings. It's human, normal, Uh, The law of sin is still in your members. You're not glorified yet. But we would rather put on the air like we have already, well, mostly been glorified (laughs) when we haven't. So Paul is saying here, look, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, okay? So notice, he's calling on Christ as an indisputable witness. In Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Second uh, Corinthians one twenty three says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Uh, that's another... Uh, passage that um, you want to look at a little bit more, but notice he's saying, uh, I'm calling God as my witness against me, okay? Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 11.31, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. 
So he's calling on Christ as an indisputable witness. And notice Christ was Paul's focus for everything he did. 2 Corinthians 12, 19. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ. But we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Uh, Last week on Monday, I went to the gym and did a little bit of training with a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, we, we were there for one hour. And um, in between exercises, he would run into the next room, do something because he owns the business, run back out, put me through the next set. And, you know, every time he was there, I was talking about things that I was learning. I was talking about uh, our messages in Romans and uh, things like that. Yeah, a little bit of politics came up, but it came up in light of what does Scripture say about this? What does Scripture say about that? And he he was following along with me. He's a good brother in the Lord. And uh Uh, He didn't say hardly anything because I was doing all the talking. Uh, But the whole point being is, why was I holding on this conversation? Because this is what's going on in my head, in my heart. And that's basically what Paul is saying here, that, look, Christ is everything to me. So when I start talking, he's there with me. I'm I'm not about to lie to you. Uh, that kind of a thing. So uh, notice uh, he goes on to say, I am not lying. He's not doing something for the sake of expediency. Again, we, uh, hey, how's life treating you? And you say, fine, knowing that uh, not everything's fine. Why are, why are you doing that? Uh, expediency. You know, it's kind of like, I don't, I don't want to let this brother or sister know that there's something wrong. You know, then we'll end up talking and I've got to get to the other room or whatever the case may be. Uh, That's basically what he's saying here. I am not lying. Uh, He goes on to say, my conscience also bearing witness, uh, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Notice in Acts 23, 12, he declared that his conscience was clean before the Sanhedrin. He says, and when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. That is not the verse I was looking for, but we'll find it another time. <laughs> uh, Paul lived in obedience and by the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 1.12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. We also see that uh, Disney's advice through Jiminy, Jimmy the Cricket, I, I wanted to say Jiminy, but it's, it's Jimmy, Jimmy the Cricket, let your conscience be your guide. Isn't that a, a great old movie, old song? Uh, they've corrupted it a couple of times since then, but oh well. Notice the conscience in itself is not reliable. Okay, Why? Basically, the conscience is neutral, and it is activated by the nature and understanding of the person to whom it belongs. Now, think about it with me. Raised in a family of nine kids, uh, mom, dad, stepfather, all have a problem with alcohol. Uh, The kids um, start drugs at a relatively early age. Sexual immorality is sprinkled in there at a relatively early age. So by the time I'm 21, what does my conscience convict me of as being wrong? 
No, no, no. I, I was on the path. I was going towards alcoholism like there's no tomorrow. I would get paid on Thursday, drink all weekend long, and have enough money for gas uh, to get back and forth to work from Monday to Thursday the following week. You'd have thought that I would have stayed away from it. But no, I was. And it's because the conscience wasn't developed and therefore is left to what I understood and my nature. My nature is twisted just like my father's. I get to see how do you handle problems. You go get another bottle. And I end up doing that, not thinking anything of it. The conscience in and of itself doesn't convict unless it recognizes that there's something wrong, which means there would have to be training, okay? Didn't have that training, so there was nothing wrong. (laughs) Uh, Believe me, it's uh, been changed a lot. Notice uh, the conscience, it can be seared. In 1 Timothy 4.2, we read, uh, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Uh, pastor talked this morning a little bit about uh, the hardening of the heart. Um, when someone hardens their heart and hardens their heart and hardens their heart, we see from Scripture that ultimately God turns around and hardens their heart. And, and part of that hardening of the heart is that they're not recognizing things as wrong. Uh, they refuse to deal with it. Even if they do feel as though it's wrong, uh, I'm, no, uh, it's the other person's fault. And after a while, they've They've got this callus there and uh, no sensitivity, okay? And then in uh, we also see in Romans 14 that a conscience can be violated. Romans 14, 20 to 23, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for a man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. Uh, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin." Now, the problem here is you have one brother that feels as though eating steak is not a problem, another brother that feels as though, yeah, you know, when I was involved in that idolatry, uh, it was all about the food. And so, yeah, I think I'm just going to eat vegetables. Not a problem. Uh, But here I am eating steak in front of him, and he smells it. Kind of like, well, you know, maybe it's not that bad because Brother Al, he's doing it. And so he eats some and immediately is convicted that he's done something wrong because he's back into his idolatry, even though that's not true. He doesn't understand that. Therefore, I have violated his conscience by getting him to do something that he wasn't ready for, okay? And uh, so it can be violated. Now, that brother, Lord willing, will grow and mature, and someday we'll be able to sit down and have a steak together, maybe. Maybe not, was that? Yeah, before eternity, because I don't think we're getting any there. I, what's with that? <laughs> but the uh, whole point being is the conscience in and of itself, neutral, 
activated by what the person understands, what they've learned by their uh, nature. Uh, it is something that can be seared. It can be violated. Uh, but we want. Uh, Paul is speaking here. Uh, not let my conscience be my guide. He says, "My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit." So it's the Holy Spirit that is uh, doing the convicting and straightening out. And so his conscience doesn't bother him. The Holy Spirit isn't giving him any indication. He is telling the truth. He is not lying. He goes on to say what he's not lying about, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Great sorrow, continual grief. This is the same kind of grief that Samuel had when Saul blew it. Saul has uh, uh, gone and made the offering. He was supposed to wait for Samuel. People were starting to leave, and uh, he was afraid if they left, they wouldn't have enough soldiers. And so he went ahead and did the uh, sacrifice, which was for the judge or the priest, not for the king. And um, then, of course, he made excuses about the whole thing, and Samuel has to tell him, God has rejected you. The thing was, was Samuel kind of liked Saul. I mean, head and shoulders taller than everybody else, good-looking guy. Uh, He's our king. Yeah, just because he's from the wrong tribe doesn't really matter. I mean, God's the one that told me, and he hasn't met David yet. Okay, so he is uh, having great sorrow about Saul having been rejected. How about Jeremiah? Uh, Jeremiah, the, the grief that he had for his people. Uh, Jeremiah 9.1 says, Oh, that my head were, wa- uh, were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. I don't know about you, but when I look at what's going on in the United States today, it does cause a certain amount of grief knowing that God has blessed us like, wow, and here we are going in the direction that we're going. And yeah, we can talk about the, the foolishness of some of the uh, leadership decisions and stuff like that, but we are doing everything we can to run away from God when we really need to be running back to him. Uh, that's the kind of grief that uh, Jeremiah was exhibiting here. In chapter 13, verses 15 to 17, give and uh, hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, he turns it into shadow of death and makes it dense dark. But if you will not hear it, My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Uh, Jeremiah's desire for the people of Israel was such that at one point he starts to stand up uh, for them before God. And God turns right around and says, Jeremiah, you can repent right now or else. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so uh, he was very involved emotionally with what was happening to his people. And that's the same kind of grief that Paul is experiencing for uh, Israel. Notice uh, number two here. Though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, Romans eleven thirteen, he was also appointed to proclaim the gospel 
to the children of Israel. Acts 9.15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear uh, my name before Gentile kings and the children of Israel. So uh, he, he did have a heart for his people. The depth of uh, Paul's grief, he says, for I could wish. Now, the reason why I have Romans 8, 30, uh, 8, 38 and 39 there is because Paul knows that what he's about to say is impossible. We talked about it last week. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Paul's the one that wrote that. He knows it. And yet here he is, you know, he didn't take a week off and then start to write chapter 9 forgetting what he said. He's writing this letter probably in one sitting, and he's moved right into chapter 9 because when Paul wrote it, there were no chapter divisions, no verse divisions. So this is following Romans 8, 38, and 39. Uh, he's, uh, there's an open qualifier here. For I could wish... He knows he couldn't reject the salvation and be accursed, uh, but which means being devoted to destruction in eternal hell and this, then uh, thus separated from Christ. Uh, but he's using this expression as a hyperbole uh, spoken from the heart, not from theological understanding. Okay, again, he knows it can't happen, but he's trying to help us understand uh, the great sorrow and grief that he has towards Israel. Uh, notice the heart of God for his creation in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, here we're talking about God existing in three persons for a time word outside of time, for eternity in the past, okay? He creates. The creation goes awry, and he is willing to give of himself his son. Now, it's not his son in the sense of we have children. It's a role that Jesus plays. He's willing to give of himself to pay the penalty from the condemnation that he is going to bring about. He's willing to go through that for his uh, creation. And so you see that same kind of thing in Paul's uh, love for Israel at this point. Uh, the heart of God demonstrated in his sanctified people. Uh, think about Moses for a moment. If Moses says, yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Okay, Moses is basically doing the same kind of thing, but this is, it's not as though this surprised God. Oh, wow, Moses loves these people more than I do. No, he was given Moses an opportunity for the eternal life that dwelt in him to show itself. Okay, so this is the image of God in Moses uh, showing God's love for his own people. You know, if you're going to do this to them, then you might as well just take me out also. And then, of course, uh, over the years, how about John Knox? He says, give me Scotland or I die. I don't know if I got that accent right. Pastor does a better Scottish accent than I do, and an Indian accent, and a couple others. Right, Pastor? No. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, here, here's a guy that he, he just wants to win people to Christ. Okay? But again, that is because God has changed him and made him have a love for his people, uh, even though they're not his people yet. They, they need to hear the gospel, and when uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, 
And so that kind of thing happens. So that brings us to the verses four and five, backside of your page. God's personal connection with unbelieving Israel. Uh, Paul's personal grief over Israel's unbelief was based on their connection to God. Notice he goes on to say, who are Israelites, to whom pertain. The word Israelites there uh, basically shows that they are descendants of Abraham through Isaac, Genesis 32, 28. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So uh, Israel, Jacob, uh, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, they're descendants of Abraham. They're called Jews. It's a shortening of the term Judah after the Babylonian uh, captivity. Uh, talking to someone here recently, and they said, do you think that the Jews, which there's no such thing as Jews, it's kind of like, why do people got to get hung up on stuff like this? It's just a shortening of the term Judah. Why? Because the northern ten tribes, Assyria took them away in 722 B.C., okay? Uh, maybe a few of them returned because of lions in the street and all that kind of stuff, but ultimately all that, all that is left in Israel is Judah and whatever, uh, there was some Levites in there and uh, Simeon was actually within the tribe of Judah. We don't hear too much about him. But when they're hauled off by Nebuchadnezzar in 605, um, there's nobody left in, in town. Maybe a, a few. I, well, there was obviously a few because Nebuchadnezzar had to come back in 592 and 586 or 596 and 582. I can't remember right off the top of my head right now to uh, put down a rebellion that the ones that had been left uh, started. Uh, they they killed the appointed leader at the time. And so whole point being is they're called Jews. It's just a shortening of the term um, after the Babylonian exile. Uh, they are distinguished in every field of human endeavor as we look at history. Uh, when it comes to science, the arts, music, business, education, and political leadership. And yet for some reason, someone wants to get rid of all of them. Over a piece of land about the size of New Jersey, um, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, visited Israel back in the early 1900s and said, it's a desert. It's a bunch of sand and rocks. Hardly anybody lives here. Basically, nomads went through it. And then all of a sudden, when uh, England and the UN, and they, they decide to uh, give Israel their homeland back, Everybody wants to get rid of them, and yet when you look at history, these are some of the areas where they have stood out. Now, have there been other people that have stood out? Sure, but they seem to, per capita, stand out more, okay? Uh, notice they have produced a disproportionate share of the world's geniuses. It is amazing to me when we think of uh, how God has blessed Israel and how God has blessed the church. Just about everything we see the government using against the people in America today wasn't produced by the government. Education. Christians felt as though people needed to be educated. In fact, 
a constitutional republic doesn't operate very well without educated people. And I'm not talking about college grads. I'm talking about people understanding civics 101, okay? And, of course, we seem to be going down the path. Why? Because when the government took education over, what did we do? We've got to dumb these people down. And let's face it, before early 60s, African Americans voted majority Republican. Why? The Republican Party had done what was necessary to free them from slavery. In fact, every major vote that had to do with freeing uh, or giving more freedom to African American people uh, was voted like 86 to 96 percent yay by the Republicans and almost 100 percent nay by the Democrats. Okay? interesting how that works. And then we got the New Deal comes along. Well, I don't know if it was a New Deal. It's one of those things where welfare and all that kind of stuff. And ever since then, African Americans have voted primarily for Democrats. Why? We tell you enough lies, you believe them, and see, and and I've heard this from white people, the parties switched one Democrat became a Republican. And yet, they feel, Martin Luther King Jr., Republican. First Republican African-American representative, 1873, I think it is. First minority uh, representative for the Democrat Party, 1992. <laughs> Tell me which one. And yet... Dumbing down, let's dumb them down, and they keep on voting. And, and they're not the only ones, okay? Plenty of white people vote Democrat when, if you look, just look at the last three administrations. Uh, when were things good? When were things not so good? See what I'm saying? Uh, but again, education. How about medicine? Where, where did medicine come from? A lot of Christian people looking at how we can work with God to bring about good health or, or saving uh, procedures and stuff like that. Now, did the secular world and science and all that kind of take that over? Sure. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing. And, and they've come up with the good things. But again, why did that happen? Because God blesses his people to do things to help a society. And yet, even with it produced a disproportionate share of world's geniuses, now, mind you, because Israel is unbelieving, some of those geniuses are really smart in the wrong direction, but uh, they, they still are pretty smart people. And then how about the adoption? Uh, if you look at Exodus 4.22, Deuteronomy 14.1, Jeremiah 31.9, Hosea 11.1, God is the one that says, Israel is my children, my son. So he adopted them as his son. Also in Deuteronomy 7, 6, Hebrews 8, 8 through 10, uh, Israel is his special people. Now you'll notice one of those passages is in the New Testament. After they have rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Hebrews uh, 8, let me read it for you here. Got to find it. There it is. Because finding fault uh, with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. 
because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now this is after the rejection of the Messiah. When the church age has started after that, and God is talking future, I'm going to do this. Why? Because they are my special people. Okay? And then, of course, something else that was given uh, to Israel, the glory. Uh, God revealed himself through the Shekinah glory. We see that in Exodus 16, 24, 29, Leviticus 9, 1 Kings 8, uh, Psalm 63, 2, especially when it came to the tabernacle in the temple, that pillar of uh, cloud uh, came over the, the Holy of Holies, and the priests actually had to leave the building. Uh, because Elvis was still there. No, uh, because of the Shekinah glory, okay? Uh, that was God revealing himself to them. And we also see in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 10, where because of the sins of Israel, the Shekinah glory, if you read it, it starts midway through 9. It basically explains why, but in midway through 9 through first part of 10, the Holy Spirit leaves the Holy of Holies. And then leaves the temple area and then goes out to the gate of the city and then goes up on the Mount of Olives and and stops, turns around, takes another look and then ascends. Whole point being is, (coughs) excuse me, it's obvious through the description that God didn't want to do it. But the uh, the Shekinah left due to their sin. He also gave to them the covenants. We have the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 15 to 17, dealing with the land. Now, why is that important? God has said that he is giving the land to the descendants of Abraham and nothing. Abraham didn't have to do anything. This was, this is what I'm going to do for you. It wasn't a conditional covenant. So the land belongs to Israel, okay? Then we have the Mosaic Covenant. That's basically Exodus 19 through 31, Deuteronomy 29 through 30, dealing with the law. And then we have the Davidic Covenant. Within the Davidic Covenant, we see an eternal kingdom, 2 Samuel 7, 6 to 16. We also see redemption for his people through David's son. Not talking about Solomon or any of the ones thereafter until we get to Christ, okay? Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is the uh, declaration of the new covenant. Ezekiel 37, 26, again, uh, a portion of that. Uh, and then, of course, Israel also received the law. The giving of the law pertained to them. Uh, Psalm 147, 19, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. Romans 3, 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them, Israel, were committed the oracles of God. What other nation did he do this for? None. You know, that that should remind us of how special we are to God. Not only do we have his word, let's let's face it, the Bible is the best-selling book in the world, 
Okay, if if New York Times actually had the bestseller list, the Bible would always be on top. But they uh, decided to remove religious books because, well, all those secular books weren't getting enough attention. Uh, but the thing is, is anyone can have a Bible. We have the Holy Spirit that enlightens our eyes, illuminates the Word of God. Why? Because we're also His special uh, people. Uh, so that uh, the giving of the law, notice the Ten Commandments and the multitude of principles and standards covering ceremonial, spiritual, and material, where if Israel would obey it, they would be blessed. Deuteronomy 28. But if they disobeyed it, they would be cursed. Deuteronomy 27. Interesting that God gives them the curses before the blessings. The warnings before the, but if you do it right, here's the good stuff, okay? Uh, we might understand something about that. One of the reasons why when we're going through the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. Why is that important? If you don't understand the bad news, good news doesn't sound that good, okay? Someone walks on a plane and you give them a uh, parachute. They're going to think you're nuts, until the plane starts falling apart and they have to jump, <laughs> okay? Uh, whole point being is, thankfully, we don't hand out parachutes when we get on planes. Uh, hopefully, that uh, will continue that way. Uh, of course, they were also given the service of God. That's the New King James within the uh, Holman and within the Greek. Uh, we have the temple service, okay? So the service of God, Hebrews 9, 1 says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service, and the earthly sanctuary. Um, Notice it refers to the temple, the ceremonial system, the sacrifices, the offerings, and the cleansings. In essence, the temple worship was the opportunity to meet with God. Uh, Again, Exodus uh, 29, 43 through 46. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. Uh, So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting in the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, why is that important? Think with me for just a moment. God puts man in the garden gives him a few commands, one negative, a bunch of positives, okay? Man falls. But before he fell, or or after he fell, what do we find out? God comes and visits him, meets with him in the cool of the afternoon. It must have been a wonderful place because most afternoons, not that cool, if you know what I mean. I was out mowing a lawn today, it's kind of just soaked uh, and then I came inside where it wasn't really that hot, but it's kind of like, can we turn on the air? We didn't. Um, it was only 75, you know, but whew, I just felt really, really hot. God came and met with them in the cool of the afternoon. God's the one that has always initiated this, hey, let's sit down and talk. If you go to Isaiah, uh, let us sit down and counsel together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll wash them white as snow. And of course, what was Israel's response? 
eh, nah, not right now, maybe later, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, the temple and all that went with that, the tabernacle and all that went with that was an opportunity for the people to meet with God. Also pertaining to Israel was the promises. Throughout the Old Testament, we have a coming Messiah. We have an eternal kingdom. And though it's hard for us to see it sometimes, even eternal life is something that some in the Old Testament understood about. When when you read the writings of David in the Psalms, it's kind of like, this guy had more of a clue than many of the progressive Christians in today's day and age. I say Christians, if they're progressive, I'm not so sure. But again, that's between them and God right now. Uh, whole point being is he, he had a clue. Uh, he, he knew that when that baby died, there was no, no further reason to sit there and mourn and uh, with uh, ashes and uh, sackcloth. He got up, he took a shower, came in to eat, and his uh, servants are all sitting there going, we don't understand. He goes, look, while the baby was still alive, I could pray and maybe God would show grace. But now the baby's gone. I'm going to go and be with him. He was not talking about the grave. He was talking about being with that baby. But he's not going to come back here and be with me. Okay? Uh, So David did have a clue, though sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we don't see eternal life as a major topic. And it's not a major topic, but it is there. Uh, How about um, the promises that are spoken of by Peter on Pentecost? In Acts chapter 2, verse 39, it says, For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And then, of course, we also have uh, the promises spoken of by Paul to the Jews in Galatia in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 34. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus. <laughs> Think about that. That's a fulfillment of a promise? Yeah, remember that Davidic covenant where he was going to have a son that was going to rule in an eternal kingdom forever? Yeah, okay? That doesn't happen when this servant of God was going to take on our sins and iniquities and suffer for them and die for them, unless he's raised again. Interesting. So he goes on to say... um, Raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has uh, spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Okay, so they have the promises. Uh, They also have the fathers. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's... Name is changed to Israel, Deuteronomy uh, ten fifteen. How about Acts three thirty five three twenty five? You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying, Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Romans eleven twenty eight. Concerning the gospel, they Jewish people are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, 
they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Okay? And then, of course, we have letter I, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Jeremiah 23, 6, In his day Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Right up here. Jehovah Tzidkenu. The Lord our righteousness. Remember, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Lord our righteousness. Now, where's that verse found again? Jeremiah, Old Testament. Uh, how about Romans 1.3? Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. <clears throat> Uh, yes, I do have it here. Uh, notice, <coughs> excuse me, preordained to be a descendant of Abraham and of David. Uh, John four twenty two to 26, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, so he is preordained to be a descendant of Abraham and of David. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, uh, this is the genealogy of Joseph. Okay, now Joseph is, if you will, his adopted dad. Uh, some would go so far as to say stepdad, but that would seem to indicate that, you know, there was a divorce and a new marriage. And no, no, there was only one marriage. And Joseph got to be, if you will, Jesus' adopted dad while he was here on earth. In Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, the genealogy of Mary. Now, why is that all important? Well, it's interesting, in both genealogies, you're going to see David. In Joseph's genealogy, you're going to see David begot Solomon. So the kingly right comes through Joseph. Yeah, but Joseph isn't his... Yeah, he is. He's his adopted dad. He has the right to be king because of Joseph. If you go back to Mary's genealogy... The son of David is Nathan. So he gets his humanity from her side of the family, being a seed of David. He gets his right to be king from his side of the family. Uh, so that, that is all there and all preordained. I know some people don't like this whole idea of predestination, preordination, and all that kind of stuff. Look, if it makes you feel better that God permitted something, go with it. But can I tell you something? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing this, that the trial of your faith produces perseverance, endurance, patience. Later on in the same chapter, every good and perfect gift is from above. You know what the perfect gift is in the context? The trial. 
<laughs> we got that Fanny, I think it's a Fanny Crosby song where uh, it, the trials are traced upon our dial. You know, God brings the trial that he knows you need to have. No, stop that. Don't say that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to show you something, show you what's in your heart, uh, teach you how to rely upon him more. Uh, and he, and notice he, he doesn't tempt you in areas that it's not a big deal for you. He, uh, there's, and he doesn't tempt, but he does bring the trial, gives you an opportunity to choose him or your flesh. Okay? If you choose him, you're looking for wisdom. If you choose your flesh, <clears throat> you may blame God, but the reality is, is every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. He's seduced, believing some lie that somehow this is going to do you good when we've all done them enough times to know that's a lie, and yet we still do it. Again, it is God that has traced that on our dial. It is a good and perfect gift, especially when we learn the lesson that he's trying to teach us in that. Uh, But yeah, he preordained. How about notice the last portion? The affirmation of Christ's deity. Some people like to make this a, a doxology. There, there really isn't a need to in the sense that, uh, notice he says, who is over all? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ, okay? Uh, Romans 8, 29. Uh, for whom, oh, well, let me just get, get the words right here. Verse 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, in John 1.18, it says, No one's seen God at any time except for the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He has declared him. He has showed us what God looks like. If you've seen Jesus, uh, Jesus said to Philip, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, whole point being is uh, he is over all. Colossians 1, 15 and 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. See, the wonderful thing about salvation is now, instead of living unto ourselves, Romans 14, Romans chapter 6, we have been raised again to live unto God. Live unto Christ, if you will. Hebrews 1.8, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So he's a king in the kingdom. He's overall And that's what Paul is declaring at this point. And then he goes on to say, the eternally blessed God, amen. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The idea of in communion, a a face-to-face relationship. And the Word was God. And we find out later, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In 1 John 5, 20, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and 
you could say, this is eternal life. Uh, so this last part is an affirmation of Christ's deity. And it's interesting because, again, look around and listen to some of the things that people are saying. And after 2,000 years, you'd kind of figure they'd get this one right. I remember hearing one of these progressive Christians here recently talking about how Jesus was racist. Uh, he was rebuked. He repented. Kind of like, uh, you really don't understand what happened, do you? <laughs> uh, the, the Syrophoenician woman who came and said, you know, uh, my, my daughter, uh, she's got a problem. Could you do something about it? He goes, look, I've come to the children of Israel, and it's not right to give the bread of the children to the dogs. At that point, this progressive Christian said, he's being racist because she's a Syrophoenician woman, not an Israelite. No, his program was get Israel back on track so they could be a light to the world, so that the world too would come to God. That was God's plan all along. And uh, they, he was there for them. And uh, she said, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. She says this because she is a woman of faith, knowing that he is the only one that can help me at this time. Okay? And so Jesus repents. Go your way, your daughter's healed. No, he didn't repent. He didn't turn from being racist because he wasn't racist in the first place. But he is God. Therefore, he knows all things. And so he's not doing anything wrong. He's drawing that faith out of her so that he can act on her behalf because he's gracious and merciful and loving. And like I say, after 2,000 years, you think people would figure it out. He's God come in the flesh. And yet, no. One group, you probably heard of the Da Vinci Code, Tom Hanks movie, a book before that. Uh, they believe that Jesus passed out on the cross. And they put him in that cool grave, and the cool air woke him up, and he moved off to France with Mary Magdalene and had kids. France? Really? Maybe America, but not France. Oh, well, uh, whole point being is, look, if Jesus isn't God and died to pay for our sins, then we're all still in our sins. And let's face it, as Christians, if Jesus just died and didn't rise again, we above all people are without hope. So uh, that gets us started on chapter 9. And as we go through this, we're going to see Israel's unbelief is part of God's plan because Israel wasn't doing what they were supposed to do. Any stranger that came into them, they basically had to go through all the ceremonial stuff and get circumcised and all that kind of stuff. And they were still second class. They were behind that middle wall of partition. They really couldn't come up to the temple and meet with God. And so God's saying, okay, you, you guys didn't understand. You didn't get it. You weren't the light to the world. So now we're going to we're gonna change things and we're going to work through the church. We're going to come back to you. There was 70 weeks, remember? 69 of them passed and Messiah was cut off. The 70th has never happened. And if the 69 were seven years each, 70 AD was not seven years long. 
It didn't happen yet. We're still looking for that to happen. Why? Because God is going to bring Israel back to repentance. Pastor spoke about it this morning. Uh, and we're going to see it happen in time. But before that, we're going to see us leave. Hallelujah. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that your love truly is a faithful love. You made promises to Israel, promises that have yet to be fulfilled completely. And we're looking forward to seeing those things fulfilled, to seeing your plan worked out. In the meantime, we ask, Lord, that you would grant to us wisdom and grace as we deal with Jewish people from time to time, that we would not make our judgments, that we would not uh, think somehow that they are out of it and we're in it, but that we would recognize for the time being their unbelief is part of your plan. And we thank you, Lord, for opening the doors so that we might come to know you. Uh, Lord, open our hearts and our minds that we may grow in the depth of our understanding that you might be glorified in the way we live in this world. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, you're dismissed. Have a good God-honoring week. Lord willing, see you Wednesday night.